Welcome to the Triage Method podcast Q&A segment with me, Gary McGowan, and my co-host, Patrick Farrell. So as you guys know from the last couple of weeks, these are the Thursday episodes that explore a quick question that we have been asked from someone on social media, someone in our Facebook group, or one of our clients. And obviously, our coaching clients do get priority, and that is the case again this week. So one of my well, clients... I should also mention just with that, like obviously when these questions are asked, we actually answer our coaching clients. Like, in yes. <laughs> you know, like it's not just like, yeah, hold on. I'm not going to answer that. Wait a I'll couple of weeks. On the podcast. Yeah, no, like obviously they get the answer straight away. But, you know, as we discussed the last time, there are questions that get asked that are really beneficial questions for uh, a wider population, uh, a wider audience, whatever you want to say. So obviously if we think they're good enough of a question to be asked or rather answered that will help a lot of people we obviously answered but anyway guy, go on yeah so this question came in from one of my clients who is a personal trainer himself and he was having uh, he was questions about one of his clients so he asked i have a question regarding a new client which i wondered if you could give some insider advice um, they have scoliosis and have struggled with back pain all their life are the obvious ones, is there any considerations you would take into account when it comes to training and programming? So for those of you who aren't aware, um, scoliosis is basically an S-shaped curve of the spine, pretty much. So a curvature of the spine. And I don't mean the curvature that you might see looking um, from the side. So, you know, if you were looking side on at someone looking towards the lateral or outside aspect of their arm, you might see that they have a real arched back, you know, the type of thing you might see during a bench press or something like that. So there's that curvature and uh, that you see side on, and that's generally, you know, your, your lower dotting and your kyphotic curves, and there's a normal curvature to the spine there. However, um, when we look kind of from posterior to anterior, from back to front, that's when we're going to spot something like a scoliosis, so some sort of curvature in the spine. And, you know, these can be um, normal, you know, a lot, a lot of scoliosis presentations, like a, a lot of you listening to this might even have some degree of scoliosis that might be very minor, but some scoliosis, scoliosis maybe, um, can be more significant and, and require surgical intervention. However, they tend to be very severe and, uh, and it's generally the result of compromising um, respiratory function or something like that so you know if you're if you if you happen to look in the mirror and you're like oh i see my spine isn't perfectly straight you needn't necessarily stress out about that you don't need to go and get surgery and have it corrected or go to a chiropractor or anything like that so so like that that's basically just like that's what scoliosis is full stop the, what we really want to focus on is the implications that something like that might have for programming okay so in this case I wouldn't really be thinking about sweating specific programming decisions um, very much. And the reason for that is because if you think about the path that this person has taken, probably throughout, I don't know, it depends what age they are, but maybe throughout their 10 or 15, the last 10 or 15 years when they've been trying to make activity decisions for themselves, it's very likely that the medical professionals and healthcare professionals that they've been consulting with up, to, up until now have been adopting a very um, conservative and overproductive approach towards activity. That tends to be the common experience of people like this. Um, so there was a there was a, a case report published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine that, that I shared in, the, in our Facebook group just about two weeks ago, um, and it was a story of a powerlifter. Um, so he was he's now a powerlifter who previously was a scoliosis or well he obviously still still has a scoliosis but previously had been given all of that advice you know about not lifting about minding your back about you know x being dangerous and y being contraindicated um all that typical advice that someone with back pain in general and someone with scoliosis especially is going to perceive and that was a really interesting paper from a kind of a patient's perspective, the actual person's perspective, giving insight into how these narratives of, of being told that, you know, basically you're weak, you can't do these things, you're fragile, how that actually impacts someone's life, you know, because that essentially is what happens is these people, when they consult with medical professionals or healthcare professionals who maybe are not very uh, 
understanding of, of the benefits of exercise in these cases, maybe don't understand the psychosocial factors that might impact someone's pain experience, then they're they're likely to be you know very conservative and think, all right, I need to make sure we don't damage the back, okay? And then down the line, what we end up with is things like fear avoidance and you know kinesiophobia, people being less active, um, people you know catastrophizing about their situation, um, being afraid to engage in certain tasks, potentially being limited socially. You know, if they can't go play five aside with the lads, or they can't go. Um, they can't go on nights out, you know, with their their girlfriends because they're afraid of getting bumped around. Like that's a, a very real report that happens from some people. So these are the types of experiences that people end up having. So to get to the point of that, the point of all of that, of bringing all of that up is to say that this person has probably been given all of that, don't do this advice already. So if you are the, you know, fitness professional that is consulting with individual, I would be far more focused at this point on, finding what they can do and trying to move that forward over time. Okay. So like what that might look like is, you know, saying to that person that, okay, I understand, you know, you, you've got back pain, you, you, you've struggled with this for a long time. I empathize with that, totally appreciate your situation, but I think it would be really good to, you know, start with the things that you can do. We'll see what you can do today in our first session. And then maybe we can, we can build that up over time. So that could be as simple as starting with something like a, a kettlebell deadlift or a goblet squat to a bench, seeing how the person gets on with that. And, you know, once they've accomplished a couple of sets and they see that they can do it, they think to themselves, you know, that wasn't too bad, you know, and then you start to just slowly nudge things forward over time because there's, there's two approaches that can be somewhat harmful unintentionally in cases like this. One is the personal trainer who's maybe too conservative and starts to focus on trying to fix things. So for example, if your first program, the client comes in and all of your emphasis is on, right, we need to fix this back. We need to make sure that all these individual muscles are strong and we need to fix the curvature and we need to achieve all that, all these prerequisites before you can even attempt to do a squat movement. That's likely to reinforce those beliefs in, in that person that, all right, I actually am kind of fragile. I need to be careful. Okay. That, there might be some harmful effects there. That's not to say your intentions aren't good. Um, similarly, on the other end of the spectrum, like if you walk, if you walk in and the coach is like, all right, we're doing five by five deadlifts at RP9 today, you know, and then we're going to test your one RM squat after that. That mightn't be the best idea either, especially for someone who does not have any tolerance to training. They're quite fearful of these movements. You don't want to totally overshoot it. So that's probably one of the misconceptions sometimes when people maybe listen to us talking about pain or, you know, exercising in the presence of pain. They think that because we're saying, all right, you know, doing nothing is really bad, that it's just like, oh yeah, just do whatever. Like, and that's not the case. It's about graded introduction, graded exposure, building up tolerance and building up the person's sense of self-efficacy that they can actually do these things. So for me, they are the biggest considerations that I would be, that I would be thinking of. And like, that's not to say that, that, you know, anything goes either. Like what, what I, what I really want to emphasize is that you can still, decide that some things are better than others. For example, if you do, if you attempt on day one, a barbell deadlift, and you're going in with this attitude that, oh, I need to get this person to do a barbell deadlift because that's going to give them confidence and self-efficacy, like, that's good, but you need to have a plan B. You need to be able to say, you know, if the person's like, oh, that just feels really bad for me, you know, um, it's really uncomfortable my back, it's, it just feels too heavy for the moment, the movement's awkward. You know, being able to just say to the person that, Oh yeah, that's actually no problem. Let's let's try it with this kettlebell. Most people find that easier. Generally, when I'm coaching people to do the deadlift, we tend to start with a kettlebell. I was just seeing how you got on. Then the person is like, okay, you know what? That's that's cool. You know, I, I know I now know that other people have this experience. I know that there's other options. I don't have feel like a, if I don't a step, if I don't accomplish the one specific exercise the person cares about, that I'm failing. You know, because you don't want your client to feel like they are failing you. You know, you ne you never want that to be the case. Um, within reason. So, so yeah, that, that would be, they will be the majority of my considerations I alluded to in, in, in the answer I actually gave to, to my client. You can get more specific. Like for example, if someone has quite a significant scoliosis, one of the things that you might think about is how does that actually change the muscle attachments that I'm dealing with? For example, the, the lats, the latissimus dorsi is, is one of the most obvious muscles that would be affected because it has such a broad span origin, you know, running from the, from the vertebrae to the thoracolumbar fascia to all the way down to, to the ilium, to the hip bones, 
if you think about the implications of that, if someone has a, a scoliosis, if it's very significant, then you've got the origin being dragged way more to one side, um, on one side, and then the, the other implication on the other side, basically it being much closer to the insertion. So that's not necessarily to say that you need to try and fix that, not at all. Like this is the way the person has, has developed. But what you might say is that, you know, all right, this, these exercises are likely to feel a bit different for you between sides. So you could potentially think, think of, you know, how, how does this impact specific exercise selection? For example, they might feel that when they do a straight dumbbell roll with the arm, the arm moving in a straight path in front of them, that, you know, one side feels great, but the other side, oh, they're just not really getting all that much. So you could play around with the angle that you're pulling at. That might change the way that that lat wraps around the rib cage and, and change that, that person's experience. But that's the, there are the talk, sort, sort of things that you, you establish through tinkering. You know, it, it's useful to have the rationale, the understanding of the anatomy and the mechanics, et cetera. But you can tinker those things. You can say that, right, this person is uncomfortable with these unilateral exercises. Maybe I could change the angle. Maybe I could change the equipment I use, et cetera. And show the person that you're actually, you're not just trying to fit them into your box, that you're trying to do some sort of customization. So they would be most of my considerations um, off the top of my head. Do you think there's anything else that no, you so consider? Or that basically, basically, what you're saying is don't go into it with a uh, preemptive fear around movements. Because I think like, especially like coming, like I, I obviously am a physiotherapist, so I don't have the, the knowledge base that you have around specific issues now. But obviously I've trained a lot of people, you know? So I'm like, okay, I understand that. But if, if someone came to me and they had an issue, say again, scoliosis, that's actually in my mind, I'm like, that's not really a huge issue unless they are literally like bent sideways. I'm like, oh, yeah, like everyone has a, a little bit of deviation here. This that's your point, you know? And um, so maybe that wouldn't be a, a, an area where I'd be like fearful, but I do understand that, you know, as a personal trainer, when you're training individuals, they come to you and they're like, Oh, I have, this hair on this muscle or I did something to this joint or did whatever in the past. Like you can, you can come into that and kind of go uh, like, I'm kind of scared of my knowledge on this, but I'm also scared on like, hey, like what should I do around this? Like you don't, you don't have the, the experience or the knowledge base to be able to go into that situation like with a hundred percent confidence. So that's why, like obviously you ask other individuals that are in your field that, you know, maybe deal with this stuff more frequently, but I can really empathize with like not want like wanting to effectively have a, a program or uh, an exercise selection cheat sheet where I'm like, these are the exercises that I do. And these are the, the safe ones, you know, but that in my mind, I'm like, that actually hinders your client's progress because you go into that with a fearful mindset. And like you said, like you're not going into this with like big dick, like mindset where you're like, Oh yeah, it fucking matters do fucking get in under that squat bar there. It's all grand. Like, don't, don't even worry about it. You know, like obviously that's not the, the mindset we want to have either. It is that kind of, we'll call it like, like you said, like that graded exposure mindset where it's like, okay, there's some movements that you may have a different experience of, or some movements that you potentially aren't ready to do right now. You know, uh, like you don't have the, the, say the motor control right now, but that's the same with, everyone who comes to the gym like that should be your 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 go-to with everyone that comes to the gym it's like there's no like all the movements they're literally made up you know so you pick the the tool that's most appropriate to the job you know so if an individual comes to you and says you know i have scoliosis that doesn't necessarily change how you view your programming for that individual because like well what we emphasize is you know you should have a lot of tools that you understand what you're trying to achieve and you just choose the right one for that person and it should be a kind of graded exposure you know like it could be something as simple as like oh you have someone coming to you and they're like i previously injured my back so i'm a little bit fearful around that and you have a some sort of protocol to deal with that you know maybe it is like say with leg training or something you're like okay i'm just going to start you off on a leg press here you know or a hack squat or some movement that they feel more confident that their back isn't going to be you know, oh, it's going to blow out my discs, they're going to blow out my spine, you know, they're going to be on the wall behind me, you know, they're, they're not fearful around that. And then you build that like self-efficacy where you're like, okay, cool. Like we're, we're, we're all good with that spot movement, you know, now let's, can we see if we can do it in a kind of more, we'll call it free living movement pattern where, you know, we're doing something that you don't have support behind your back, you know, it's like, okay, like you said, like a goblet squat or something, 
you know, it's like, okay, can, can we see how, how that progresses? And you're like, okay, see, look, you're actually, you're pretty good at that. You're getting stronger at that. Let's see if we can progress to, you know, a barbell squat or whatever. And again, that doesn't mean that everyone has to progress to that level or to that exercise, but you effectively are just trying to build confidence in that individual's uh, ability to move, you know? And like, you might notice that there are, we'll call them movement uh, discrepancies, you know, like they, again, like they have scoliosis uh, in this example, like you might notice that they do like laterally shift or something in the squat, you know? But that doesn't necessarily, like, while you might be like, oh, oh Jesus, that's, that's a big issue. Like, I don't want to see like that pelvis like shift a little bit. Like you have to remember two things with that, right? First of all, like humans are really adaptive in terms of like they'll, they'll find uh, a movement pattern that suits their, their body, you know? And that, like, again, like you see people that have like, you know, really serious like uh, medical issues uh, or like they've been in a car crash or something, like they'll effectively teach themselves to walk again using the, the abilities that they have currently, you know? And it may not look like walking as a quote unquote normal person does, but they're still able to get the, the job done. So that's, in my mind, I'm like, that's not a huge issue. Now you may want to address something like that because it could just be a, a technique issue. They're like, oh, I'm really fearful of my, my right side. So I don't want to put too much pressure there. And, I, and I, I'm just shift all my way to my left side or whatever. Like that's, that's fair enough. Like you do have to give some coaching, obviously. Again, we're not saying that like, oh yeah, it doesn't fucking matter. Nothing matters. Like do whatever, you know, like obviously you do need to put uh, some emphasis on we'll call it the correct technique or whatever you want to call it you know but notice or realize that there are going to be deviations from what you think uh, as a trainer is like perfect technique or good technique or whatever like they, they're going to find a, a movement pattern that suits them but also again like realizing that there there are no necessary exercises so if you feel that you don't feel confident that they're going to be safe in loading that like progressively over time, you know, like there's a, there's a huge deviation, like lateral shift in their hips, you know, and you're like, look, I don't feel confident. Even if you're like, I, I just don't, you don't think it's going to cause an issue or whatever. You're, you're just kind of thinking like, I don't like to see that, you know, you can, you can move them onto something else that, that you don't see that shift. You can be like, okay, cool. I actually feel you personally as a trainer feel confident in giving them confidence in that movement, because I think that's also not addressed quite often like we talk about like say empowering the client but like you kind of have to be empowered yourself to be able to empower the client like if you look at them squat every single time and you're like <gasps> like you you feel like you, know, you get that, that that fear like that's like you, there's no way that you can just hide that completely from the the, the client in front of you or even if it is you know like a, a, in the virtual sphere you know you're training them online or whatever it's like there's no there's no real way that you can hide that fear from them so like in my mind i'm like okay cool if their goal is to squat and i'm still getting that fear you know maybe this relationship isn't the, the best one like this coaching relationship isn't the best one maybe i'm not the best coach for you i need someone that's actually more adept at this or it could be the case of you going look i don't feel confident in you progressing this you maybe don't say it like that because again you don't want to build or a negative relationship a fear around movements but you're like okay can we switch to this exercise one that you do feel confident in actually progressing them on well, how would you feel about that Gary? yeah i think that's fair like i do think that um sometimes like it is our own inherent biases that actually limit our clients because if you as you as you alluded to if you are that type of person that like when you're looking at the person lift that you're you're just like oh shit is this dangerous i don't know like if you genuinely don't know and you're and you're think your initial instinct is that this is dangerous, then that could potentially then brush off on your client by you making those decisions or you showing that you are, you know, scared shitless every time they lift, you know. So you don't want to you don't want to to reinforce that. And I guess part of that is somewhat like exploring yourself, you know, the the rates of injury and in weight training, for example, or even, you know, having a think about um, what what it, what am I actually worried about when it comes to this exercise? Is there a significant risk here? And then weighing up the um, the risk to reward ratio, I guess, of someone doing um, weight training in general. Because generally, when you start to weigh up those things, you're like, actually, the the risk associated with weight training tends to be relatively low. You know, it's 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 relatively low. And when when you look at like exercise deviations that someone might um, 
present with, like, for example, a little bit of lateral shift on the squat, when you actually ask yourself, like, what am I really worried about here? It's like, like worst, worst, worst thing, the worst thing that can happen is that the person's probably going to be, you know, loaded a bit too, a bit more on one side. And maybe, like maybe it could be the case that that person has a little bit more soreness in one hip or one side of the back after the workout. It's like, yeah, it's not that much of a big deal. You'll be fine by the time you could go to your next workout. Point being, not that you don't try to address those things at all, but that the risk associated with that is not necessarily um, that high that you need to be like, oh no, we, we shouldn't do that. We need to change to this. So I think just being optimistic about what people are capable capable of adapting to and, and optimistic of what people can actually attempt. I think that's really helpful when dealing with people um, who are, you know, in pain or have some of these musculoskeletal um, abnormalities, so to speak. Um, and that's how you're going to be able to, to help people. So the part of that does come with addressing our own biases, addressing, you know, what, why do I think this? Why have I come to this thinking that, no one should squat like for example like I, I was speaking to one of my clients a few weeks ago who had you know he'd been he'd received some education from some other educators and stuff and one of the things that the impressions that he had was that you need to make sure that someone has loads of different prerequisites before they attempt to do a squat so for example doing things like loads of unilateral work first having a balance between the hips and doing you know core work and i'm not, I'm not sure what else was on the list like that, that's irrelevant um, and i respect the educators but the point being that you know if you if you if you have all of these prere prerequisites or these ideas that someone could only do this exercise when they have achieved this you have to ask yourself why you know very simply like wh why is that the case why would someone need to have to do to go through all these hoops before they could do an exercise with simply lightweight, you know, and often it's because they perceive there to be some sort of risk. And then when you actually ask yourself, all right, what is that risk? And, and how do I know that that risk is present? You'll often find that there's very empty answers, you know, um, because the, even the research on like weight training and injury risk, it's, it's, it's not like a big body of evidence and the evidence that is there would suggest that weight training is like relatively safe compared to other sports. And then when you think of the way that other people approach other sports, you very rarely hear someone saying um, that they're not going to go out and play seven aside with the lads because they don't have balance between their hips or they haven't done enough unilateral work or something like that. Um, so it is interesting to ask why do we treat those activities different to um, weight training when like those activities are, have a higher rate of injury, rate of injury, and the fact that the injuries can potentially be more serious. You know, so for example, uh, fracturing your femur, <laughs> not good potentially can happen in soccer never going to happen in weight training unless you do something ridiculous so um yeah that's that's i guess everything we had to add just on that as well like this firstly on the the prerequisite thing like i always think i'm like well like i can get behind this to an extent right if there is uh, uh like that's basically they're saying like this is a graded exposure they're giving you a method of graded exposure it's like yeah, if you're able to do a split squat here, if you're able to do a Bulgarian split squat, it's like, yeah, you have, you know, the the, the perfect symmetry between your legs or whatever, even though, again, like, it's, it's a bit of a lie that there is perfect symmetry or whatever, you know? And But you're like, yeah, you have all these prerequisites. Like, in my mind, I'm like, like, what, like, why are the stop points arbitrary? You know what I mean? Like, it's like, okay, so we'll take the, the squat or whatever as a, as a, as an exercise you know you go through like okay so you should be able to do we'll just we'll just say you should be able to do a leg press you should be able to do you know a, a goblet squat you should be able to do like split squats like like whatever whatever prerequisites you want to call them like again like i would just call it a, a graded exposure or whatever but like you name all these prerequisites to get you to be able to back squat right like why is that stop why do we stop there like why aren't we keep going like why don't we go like Oh, you should be able to do this to do fucking power cleans, you know, and then you should be able to snatch. You should be able to like, you can just keep increasing the complexity of the exercise. You know, it's like you've just arbitrarily chosen an endpoint and you've then arbitrarily chosen different exercises to be prerequisites to that endpoint, right? And like, the, the rationale behind it may be like the, the no, not the rationale the actual actual application behind it may be smart in terms of is like okay you should be able to you know control your body in relative relative to the stuff around you 
and you know this is a way we can go about doing this you know if you're able to do a split squat it's like yeah cool like let's see if we can get you able to do a, a squat now you know it's like that's in my mind i'm like that's cool it's just a it's just a tool it's just a method you know but the rationale is often like very arbitrary like you said like i like i always look at it i'm like like who are we setting these standards off because if we set it off say for example me like I could, if, if I'm the person that sets the standards, or first of all, we've already discussed on the podcast that I have hugely unrealistic standards for strength. Like just, they're, 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 not, they're not in touch with reality, okay? So that's the first thing. But also like, do we set, like if I'm like, okay, well, we wanna have a, a, an open you know, mobile pelvis. Like my open mobile pelvis, like I can do the front splits and the side splits. So do, like, do I say that that's the prerequisite to, being able to squat now like you have to be able to do a box split a box split or yeah a box splits before you're able to squat like that's sorry it's just a prerequisite you're not allowed to get under a loaded bar unless you're able to do that you don't have mobile hips bro you know it's like that's you're not allowed you know so like in my mind i'm like these prerequisites i'm like this this they're, they're just arbitrary but again like exercise itself is arbitrary like the the actual tools are somewhat irrelevant like obviously there are better tools for the job and as i said like with the the prerequisites it's like this if you use this appropriately it's probably a good method for getting someone in to be able to do a squat or whatever movement it is you know like it's like oh cool like yeah we're going to make sure that your your core is actually strong enough to be able to do this like i can get behind all that like i'm like cool that's again it's just you're just giving them exercise to do that gets them to a point where they they feel confident squatting under a bar. But I also don't think you should be spending like three years of training with an individual, not actually achieve their end goal because you've been like, oh, well, we didn't actually, I know you wanted to be a power lifter, but uh, we weren't able to get the, the perfect ratio of our uh, split squats here. So uh, I never got you under a bar. You actually never learned to squat. You've effectively you know not use those three years to learn your sport you know and like you said it's like this like the other sports are not not doing this you know it's like like they're probably more dangerous to do and nobody seems to bat an eyelid about those you know um so there's that do you have anything to add to that because i have a, another essentially a question but it's more of a thought process well, no you can ask your question right so with with all that in mind, like this, this this applies to other we'll call them injuries or issues as well. But the for, like I'll give you an example. Like say again in a scoliosis, like you might have someone that has like one of their shoulders. Like obviously everyone naturally carries one of their shoulders. Well, not everyone, but most people naturally carry one of their shoulders a little bit higher, right? Would you agree? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Uh, so if you're someone with scoliosis, like that might also be exaggerated, yeah. right? So what you could you could t- say if you wanted that that's a, a tight trap muscle, right? Not not technically correct, but that's if you were to just visually inspect that person, that's kind of what it looks like. Their trap is a little bit uh, more contracted, looks a little bit tighter. So you're like, yeah, tight trap, right? Now you might also listen to this podcast and be like, right, well that's. That's not really something that I need to deal with, you know, like, yeah, okay, cool. I could maybe do some stretching if I really wanted to as a kind of, we'll call it a placebo benefit for that individual. Maybe it actually will help them, you know, and overall getting stronger in good movement patterns will help them. But again, we're talking about someone, you're training someone, you're still a little bit unconfident in your movement biases. You're like, oh, I don't know about this. Like, I don't like, should they move like that? You still have that kind of like perfect technique in your mind, which again, has its benefits, right? But well, again, I'm going with this example. Would would you be, I'm not gonna say fearful, but say for example, with that, you have someone bench pressing, right? Like their movement ability on that, like they're not going to be able to press that bar in a straight line. Well, I say they're not going to be able, that's probably my bias coming into it being like, oh, with your trap like that, that's you're not gonna be able to do that perfectly. But we'll just say, for example, they're, they're doing their bench press and one side, is way more elevated, like it's more over their shoulder, whereas the other side is more over, we'll say, the, the nipple line. You know, every time they, they get down, both, both of them are touching the, <clears throat> the nipple line roughly, and then as they press up, one shoulder kind of elevates up and presses up, right? Now, the individual themselves might experience that as just a difference in how they 
perform the movement. They may be like, oh, well, I feel this side really in my pec and I feel this side more in my shoulder, like my front depth, right? Again, this could apply for the lower body, like we were saying, you're squatting. They might be like, well, my left leg, I feel this like a really good connection, but my right leg, not so much. You know, whatever way it presents, whatever exercise, that's good. Would you, and this again ties into the, the prerequisite question, you know, especially if they're doing like unilateral movements, would you be more, I don't know, uh, would you think, we'll call them unilateral movements, would you think they're more appropriate? Because I see this in, in two different ways. For example, that's why I use the bench press. Like you could argue that the, 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 the barbell bench press, you know, it causes them to elevate their shoulder and put more pressure on or more tension on one of their uh, front delts versus the other one, right? You know, so you might notice that in terms of a, a hypertrophic perspective, like one of their pecs is really well developed and their other opposite side front delt is more developed and that pec isn't as developed. You, you might notice that visually or whatever, or you might notice nothing, you know? <laughs> um, but they might also experience some we'll call it difference in pain and difference in experience with that. Like they might notice, okay, cool, get great connection with one side, feel a little bit of a niggle in my uh, shoulder on the other side every time I do that, right? Would you then be like, okay, we're going to use a unilateral movement, which you might think like, okay, that means a one-arm dumbbell press. But in my mind, I'm like, well, as soon as you get rid of the two arms connected, that's a unilateral movement in my mind. So just a, a regular dumbbell bench press is unilateral in my mind anyway you know those two arms are independent so they can move independently you know and um, so would you use something like that even though the movement discrepancy is going to still likely be there or would you be more inclined to move it to something like a chest press where you can get a very fixed range of motion right and then how do you also navigate that without inducing fear in the individual you know being like oh no okay you're just not built to bench press with the bar we're not doing that you're going to get a shoulder injury from that like obviously that's not the, the the way to do this but like how do you navigate that situation because that's going to come into like different exercises as i said like it could be the squat it could be whatever like as we address like obviously you have to address your your movement biases but what if they are, the client is experienced a little bit of, we'll call it, you know, a difference in experience in terms of the, the muscle sensation, but also the, the, the pain sensation that's within that exercise. Like, do you, yeah, I'm basically giving you the stuff, but how, how do you do that, Gary? Yeah, so I suppose like to get back to your actual example, we've got someone who cannot depress one shoulder quite as much for whatever reason. Let's just leave it at that. And then as a result, they've got some asymmetry in their movement during a pressing exercise. Okay. So then you have to ask yourself, right, what, what's this person's goal? Because if this person's goal is powerlifting, for example, or it doesn't have to be powerlifting, it might be bench press is the lift I want to improve. Then in that case, you, you know that, all right, the end point I need to get to is that this person needs to be able to express their strength on the bench press. Um, and then like if we leave the, the pain aside for a second, if we think to ourselves that, all right, this person wants, has an outcome-based goal. It's, a, it's an outcome-based goal in that like they want to achieve a certain, certain lift with very specific parameters and they want to be able to do X amount of weight. Then we know that it is a performance, it's for a performance outcome. So it's, it's external. It's something that their body is producing as opposed to an internal adaptation obviously an internal adaptation is part of the process to get there but the end outcome is that we need to be able to express strength on this exercise with specific parameters okay so <clears throat> with that in mind there are no there is no movement pattern that is required for you to be able to express that you just have to be able to achieve the outcome so if it was just strength and it was just bench press and that was it And for whatever reason, they genuinely stress out and, and say that it needs to be perfectly symmetrical. That's not necessarily the case. Okay, it might be desirable to provide cues to improve performance, but I mean, I, I I would be potentially optimistic in that case and saying that all right, we've got a little bit of asymmetry. It seems to have been there long term, um, and if your performance has been improving and we have no reason to believe that it's not going to continue to improve, 
then okay, you know, your shoulders are, are taking loads slightly differently, but the outcome is okay, you know? So I'd be, from a performance perspective, I'll, yeah, that's not something I'm going to sweat too much, you know? An extreme example of that is, is Hussein Bolt, fastest man on the planet, produces 14% more force in one leg versus the other, which I believe is a result of um, a leg length discrepancy. So, you know, you've got to... You've got all, to the, all the chads have leg length discrepancies, yeah. like myself, what can I say, you know? <laughs> So you've got you've got a perfect example of that there of someone who is you know they've got these um, anatomical anatomical quote unquote abnormalities that one might say oh that's going to be be the limiting factor in your performance but because it's a performance outcome external to the body and not necessarily just the internal adaptation you you can do just fine you know I mean he's he's not doing too bad um, and that's not to say that if he didn't have that, that he mightn't be 0.001% one second faster. You know, that's not that, saying that, but what I'm saying is that despite the fact that he's been affected by that, you can still, he's still improved pretty well and he's gotten somewhat fast, you know? Um, so that, that's kind of just the performance isolated aspect from a hypertrophy perspective. If this person was saying that, you know, one of my pecs is very clearly larger um, I want to compete in bodybuilding and symmetry is really important to me and my right pec is just not developing because the shoulder is moving and I feel it all on my shoulder and, and whatever. In that case, there's very real reason to believe that doing this, this continuing with this exercise bilaterally in the bench press and moving the way that they are where they feel that you know their chest is not the limiting factor on that side, then you definitely have reason to believe that they might have suboptimal hypertrophy and you might be able to achieve the symmetry that they desire if you keep on driving on with that exercise. So that's the, the key difference between performance and hypertrophy outcomes. Hypertrophy is fundamentally about what is going on in You know, it's not about right, how much weight was I able to lift. It's like, it's what's actually going on at the level of the muscle fibers within the muscle that you're trying to, um, trying to train. So in that case, like you might want different exercises. You might want to find an exercise that you can vary the arm path on, or, or maybe even a, a quote unquote unilateral exercise where you are doing, you know, you're still doing a bilateral dumbbell chest press, but you're doing it with the weights being loaded independently on either side. And I mean, I know some people get real afraid of using a different weight between left and right, but if, if, you, if there's a genuine strength difference and you find that you need to take a step back on your weaker side, like that's fine. I, I would have no problem with someone doing like a 24 kilo dumbbell and a 26 kilo dumbbell for the dumbbell press if they do, um, provided not like 50 kilos and 20 kilos of falling off the bench, you know, like probably not a great idea. Um, so hypertrophy, it's a different consideration. You might want to say, all right, let's bear on with some of these cable exercises. Let's actually take the wrist out of it. Let's use cuffs. Let's see what way we can potentially train these muscles um, with the limitations that we have um, present. So th there's different things you can play around with there. Basic take on point being that the way that you think about these things when it comes to hypertrophy is different to the way you think about them when it comes to performance or strength, which is one aspect of performance in this case. Then when it comes to like actual, some, like someone, we're at a point where someone is reporting pain. You know, this is, this is, I've got pain in the shoulder. I think it's because um, this, you know, I've also got lower muscle mass in the side. Anytime I train it, I feel like my shoulder is my limiting factor. I'm not really able to get my scapula into position. But again, that might be the case where, that's a, that's a case where you know you need to potentially modify something. Um, and But I would always frame that in a way that, okay, so for whatever reason, we know that the exposures that you've, been exposed to up to this point have been pushing you beyond your level of tolerance. Um, so what we need to do is find ways that we can, you know, bring, bring, bring the load back in, into your level of tolerance of um, just changing exercises. I would, I would never, I would very, very, very rarely frame that in terms of saying, you're just not built for that exercise. We need to ditch it forever. It would be more like, you know, let's give a dumbbell chest press a shot. Let's give this machine a shot. Let's give some cables a shot. Let's see how you get on. Um, and it could be changing repetition ranges. It could be changing range of motion. For example, if the person reports that, yeah, you know, bench press is fine until I come down the last one or two inches, inches towards my chest. You know, that's really when I, when it starts to become a bit of a problem, then we might say, all right, let's, let's kind of see what happens if we come down a bit slower, we pause two inches off the chest and then we complete our normal sets and reps with that sort of approach. And if the person's like, yeah, that actually helps to 
you know, manage my symptoms, then what I would say is that it's not necessary that we're going to do that forever, but you know, let's take the next four to six weeks. Let's work, work at this. Let's let the symptoms die down. And then we can reintroduce the, the bench press to the chest in line with your goals again. Um, with a slightly slower, slower tempo and we keep in these pauses and then we'll gradually expose. So, um, obviously the specific answers that you give is going to be specific to the person and you can see how the, your, your considerations are going to vary between, right? Is this person chasing a performance outcome? Is this person chasing hypertrophy? Is this person chasing um, an improvement in symptoms? There's different considerations and I think it is, it is important um, to think about that. And I guess it just um, kind of reinforces the idea that there's no simple blanket recommendation here. You can't just have a recipe. It's, it just doesn't, it doesn't really work. That's cool. I think that, well, I hope that answers the question overall. So to sum it up, again, don't be a fearful trainer, <laughs> for one. Don't, don't instill fear in the individual. Then make exercise selection changes and program changes as you actually see the, the client move and as they actually report on that movement, you know, if they're like, yeah, that feels good, then yeah, again, build confidence in those movements. You know, again, you may have to make some exercise selection changes. If you're, again, a little bit fearful of those movements yourself, you're like, okay, they're not, they're not getting the outcome that we want. Again, like we discussed, there's various considerations depending on the outcome. But if you're like, yeah, we're not moving towards that, you know, thinking of a different exercise that would potentially move them forward, allowing them to try that out, getting feedback, etc. Basically, don't be stuck in your ways and choose the right tool for the right job given the individual's goals and what they are presenting and how they are progressing with that overall. Yes. Do you add anything to that? No, I think that's, that's pretty solid. And I mean, if you are, if you are interested in reading that paper that I mentioned, I do think it's actually insightful for coaches to read or physios um, or anyone involved in healthcare. I think it's useful to get the person's perspective on like what they've been told from healthcare professionals, because um, it is fairly enlightening. And I think it's always good to hear that someone has come out the other side and been like, yeah, you know what? I actually did take a power thing and made my life better through lifting. Um, despite, you know, it being probably against what most healthcare professionals would advise. And that's not to say that we have a, an anti healthcare <laughs> mindset, not, not in the slightest. <laughs> yeah, it's really de de definitely me. You want to take it down from within. Also, I think there's another one, you were discussing it in the Facebook group as well before, you know, with uh, coaches, whoever's ability to actually identify injury risk based on, you know, movement pattern discrepancies or whatever you want to call them, like, you know, valgus knee or whatever. Like, I think that layers on very nicely to this discussion. As I said, like, you know, you might see things and you're like, oh, Jesus, that's going to be an issue when in reality, like, you're not actually able to identify that. You know, and you discussed that again in the Facebook group as well, because obviously everyone should be in the Facebook group where we discuss these things on the regular. Would you agree, Gary? Yes. Like generally, if I find something or if Patty finds something that we're reading and we're like, yeah, I think people might like that or they might like to take on points, we'll share it in the group. So I think that's useful because, I mean, man, I don't know about you, but like when you get those emails from those PubMed alerts, like you've got like a hundred paper sometimes you're screening through you're like uh, but bullshit bullshit useless yeah people don't care about that <laughs> oh, oh that might be oh that might be use that might be useful let's 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 have a look at that and it saves you a lot of time to just be like oh yeah let's see what you might think it's important do you do you not read every single paper that gets sent you know oh yeah of course like surely you know, you're not surely you're not like judging a paper by its title like that'd be like judging a book by its cover it, it helps me judge my potential interests. Like, I mean, when I have my, I have like my uh, muscle hypertrophy keyword in, in one of the, the alerts and then I get all these rare papers on like uh, the IXDF mutation in a rat model of uh, cardiomyocyte hypertrophy. I'm like, fuck. Interesting, but not today. <laughs> <laughs> Save for later. Yeah. Um, yeah, like I have a lot of uh, PubMed alerts for uh, systems chemistry, and I'm like, oh, like that that sounds juicy enough, but I'm not going to spend two hours reading that because yeah, it's not it's not my field. But I enjoy enjoy understanding this stuff. But anyway, um, 
where can people find us, Gary? Um, as we just alluded to, Facebook community is probably the best thing. You know, we, we, uh, we get a lot of messages in our Instagram um, saying, you know, asking us questions or asking for tips on how to modify the program templates. That was one of the questions this week. Things like that, you know, things about, about the podcast. And I always just respond and say, ask this in the Facebook community. If you're thinking it, other people are thinking it. And it's far more helpful for us to have the answer there so that we can then say, when someone else asks, you just tag them, you know, so it's done. And it's, it's much easier for you and much easier for us so that we can actually my Instagram. If I go on the yeah, Instagram, um, I'm generally going on just to make sure that we don't have any messages and I'll click through and I'm just like, okay, yeah, email info triagemethod.com or go to the Facebook group. So it's far better just to ask there on the Facebook group because that, that means that we're sitting down on our laptops. We've gone there deliberately and then we're going to take the time to actually give an answer as opposed to just, you know, flicking on your phone. You don't want to be, to, don't want to be doing that. But anyway, um, you can email info. On that as well because like we always ask a question uh, when you join the group, like where did you hear about this? Just because... Like we want to know what avenues people are actually listening to, et cetera. And like loads of people said after we were discussing it, like I actually don't know where it is in relation to this podcast because this is coming out whenever. <laughs> but uh, one of the people joining said that they realized after we discussed it on the, the podcast that the Facebook group is actually a much better method of communication because you can actually, you know, link stuff. You can actually have a yeah, conversation really that's kept in a, a thread format rather than just random comments all over the place that, you know, um, and they were like, Oh yeah, you convinced me that the Facebook group is a much better method of communication than Instagram. And uh, like I, I personally, I was like, Oh, like surely everyone knows that. But, you know, that's only if you're actually already in other Facebook groups or you're interacting on Facebook in that manner. Like if you've just been exposed to say fitness through Instagram, like you may not even realize that there are like Facebook groups that are really beneficial to actually helping you achieve your health and fitness goals because you can actually have a discussion. You can actually talk to like-minded people rather than just like, I don't know, searching hashtag fitness and hopefully following some individuals that, you know, have excuse me, similar goals to you or whatever. Um, like you, if you can actually see in the Facebook group, it's like, oh, there's loads of people. They chat to each other. You know, they're chatting under a thread. You know, you're like, oh, I like that. Oh, here's my experience on that. You know, like it's a much better like community, which is obviously what we're trying to build there. But anyway, that's one. But yeah, Instagram is a pretty useless platform for that. I mean, like if someone comments and they're like, hey guys, do you guys have any articles on X? Then we're just like, oh yeah, uh, go to our website They're on our website for, yeah search for, search for this you might find it because like instagram i don't i don't know why there's obviously a reason but they still don't have hyperlinks you can't you can't even paragraph your responses when you're sending a message so if you if you send like a, a comment it's like one big massive body of text no links it's like this this makes no sense and there's no way of going back and searching for it or saving it so yeah, it's just not not a great platform for us anyway. But um, but yeah, great platform. Um, full stop. Unless you're a photographer of some sort. Yeah, true. Um, of course, check out our website triagemethod.com. Articles, resources, um, po podcast archives. You can find everything that you're looking for pretty much on the website. And um, you can follow us on Instagram. But you know, as we alluded to, Facebook is definitely a better idea. And of course, join the Triage Method newsletter. And that goes out every Sunday morning and it includes uh, all of our resources that we've posted across the week and um, includes information about any maybe events that we're attending or that we might be running ourselves and that will be coming up um, soon. And then, of course, resources that we've come across from across the internet. So, for example, articles that we've been reading, podcasts that are interesting, videos that might be interesting. I even throw in the odd tweetorial that people do these days. And um, so, you know, we're, we're on the ball. Um, yeah. And then obviously if you want to engage in whatever services we offer, there are effectively three options. You have the chance to engage in buying uh, an ebook template. We have a few different ones, you know, depending on how many days you have to train. We also have a beginner ebook. There are quite a few other ebooks we have planned. So, keep an eye on that obviously if you're on the newsletter you will get you know first notification of that um and you can also engage in group coaching um because that's that's something that 
like I actually think is really beneficial for a lot of people and they don't even realize that it's beneficial because you effectively get the the pros of having a template but also the pros of having you know a dedicated community towards your goals you know you can send in videos ask questions and effectively you get the pros of also having a coach and you get rid of all most of the cons anyway in terms of the the price of having that coach like the only con i see towards group coaching and i say this again with as someone who sells group coaching so i want you to buy it and um, the only con i see is not having as much accountability as you know one-to-one coaching but that effectively is why there is that price difference however there is a way around this if you effectively just ask questions and check in in the group every single week you know because we're not going to be like oh i'm not going to answer that because that's effectively what i give with you know online coaching if, if you do check in and you give us an update ask us questions like our clients would you'll still get the answer just as like our clients would so i'm kind of selling that like you're basically if you do that you get a better option you know so uh group coaching it's great and then we do have online coaching available it is filling up and again i know i say that all the time but as we've discussed before you know this is what happens when you have clients finishing up which is our objective you know like i had i had a client finish up this week well actually last week in relation to this and i was just on the phone to them and like i've i've had them as a client for the last two plus years you know but it's like now they're ready to go out on their own they've achieved their goals they have the tools they have whatever and it's like yeah cool you're finishing up great we're done you know and obviously we have a a plan going forward and being like okay well check in with me in two weeks time four weeks time or whatever you know just so we can ensure that that transition to them coaching themselves is effective you know and but yeah like if you're interested in online coaching get involved all the links to all the stuff is in the description if you're watching this on youtube like subscribe share do all that stuff that enhances the youtube algorithm and if you're listening to this on the podcast again subscribe because you know i think it's like 30 percent of the people that listen to this aren't subscribed which is you know atrocious really you should be subscribed there you get it literally brought to your phone every single week twice a week and other than that i have nothing else to say gary do you no that's it it's too easy it literally is